Hello, everybody. Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, and not just any fantasy today, because today we are rocking out to Kings Mm. of the Wild by Nicholas Eames. We've made it. Uh, This was a book that we rushed into our imminent TBR because, well, we simply had to read it. We were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <the> musical puns. <laughs> <laughs> we had to uh, rush it onto our TBR, and we just because we were just so excited, so eager, we 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 couldn't wait any longer. Um, this book has been recommended to us multiple times over the past year. We've been doing the show, and. Dylan, you've even had the chance to to recommend it for the show in the past, and now that we're here, finally reading it, well, I'm just super excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm pumped too, Charles. This is one that I've been long awaiting getting your take on. <laughs> I consider you a music connoisseur and also a humor connoisseur, and of course, a fantasy novel connoisseur. So I feel like this is the triple threat for you, (laughs) Charles, to come in and offer your take because we've got lots of humor, we've got lots of music references, and of course, there's a fantastic fantasy novel that we've got here from Nicholas Eames. I'm excited to get into it with you. I'm excited to get into it too. Like you said, many worlds colliding for me personally here, and I feel like that attributes a lot to this book's popularity it's such a good sell of like hey what if mercenaries in a fantasy world a la D were treated like rock stars and so now we're gonna get yeah. into it but before we get into mm. it we have a little bit of a spoiler warning to drop don't we dylan yes we do charles and i read kings of the wild before coming in here and we won't be holding back from spoilers on kings of the wild in this buddy read discussion episode so if you haven't yet read kings of the wild now's a great time to go pick it up because it's an awesome funny a exciting book and uh, if you don't want to get anything spoiled for you then now's a good time to turn this down in your headphones uh, well said, Dylan. Me. We are turning <laughs> turning this down in your headphones all the way to off if you don't want it spoiled. Because <laughs> just don't just, just lower the volume. <laughs> <laughs> Turn this down to zero and go yes. read the book. Highly recommend. Um, if it sounds any kind of if the pitch of what we just said, mercenaries being treated by rock stars in like a D&D fantasy world, if that sounds even remotely appealing to you, you're going to have a good time. And Dylan, um, I just got to say from my review, I did get some satisfaction from reading mm. this book, and now I'm excited to get into it. I got a whole lot of love for this book. And I'm super excited. Mm, that's awesome to hear. Yep. The plot really got me. And uh, 
that's you know i'm feeling like a like a free bird so let's get into it oh <laughs> hey <laughs> uh let's <laughs> get into it so kings of the wild nicholas eames first impressions yeah one of the things that I wanted to talk about right away and the thing that struck me most directly about this book was it's, I guess I was toying out this phrase, like unabashedly fun, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, this, the action, the humor, the epic nature of it, the battles, it, it kicks it up to 11 and it's not afraid to do so. I feel like so many fantasy books try to take themselves very seriously and like build up to these moments and have this drama in between and and Nicholas Eames does have those moments but he's not afraid to just when he wants to just have tons of fun and and crank it up you know and and I really enjoyed that about the story yeah I feel the same way Charles something that I feel Nicholas Eames is able to do really incredibly with Kings of the Wild is he walks that tightrope between the humor, which is being offered in such a great supply, and the very, I, I don't think serious is the right, uh, moment, right way to say it, but like a, keeping the stakes and keeping the us enthralled in a story where we actually care a lot about the outcomes. Because I've read some fantasy novels that lean on humor in a way where I I stop caring as much about the characters, about their arcs, about if the, uh, you know, if they're going to be able to accomplish what they set out to do, because I'm like, oh, this is just like a funny romp that happens to me at times reading. But I feel like Nicholas Eames gives us the best of both worlds in the Mm -hmm. sense of grabbing all of the humor you'd want from a romp while keeping us invested in the characters, in the plot. And I guess taking the book seriously while providing us with tons and tons of humor along the way well said and this book is just so full of really fun dialogue and really fun isms a lot of people were comparing Mm -hmm. him to like terry pratchett in that way i i get the influence there because it's this like observational descriptions that just cut with humor in such a unique way but i was reading you know my copy of this book had a a interview with nicholas eames in the back and he does actually cite joe abercrombie as an influence Mm. in which using humor to to tell a dramatic story and i appreciated that quite a bit you know us as abercrombie fans i see that parallel so directly yeah, well, it's interesting. The first time I ever had this recommended to me, it was recommended to me because of my Joe Abercrombie fandom. And mm-hmm. reading this book, it is far, far, far away from being anything resembling grimdark. So yeah. it would be, in some ways, it's surprising <clears throat> to have this book recommended because it's it's pretty hopeful and optimistic and uh, leaning more on like classic fun humor rather than Abercrombie's twisted humor. And yeah, it's, it's strange to get it recommended by uh, when you're talking (laughs) about being a fan of someone whose Twitter handle is Lord Grimdark. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, it becomes very clear that that influence is there because of what you're saying, Charles, this, uh, this ability to 
I guess it's like infuse humor in a real feeling story rather than lose like lose all meaning from just the whimsy and nonsense right. of it. Exactly, exactly. He's not setting out to tell like sometimes when I see books being, you know, branded as like a a, a funny book, I almost get nervous <laughs> because it's like, oh, I don't I don't like books that are like <laughs> that are like comedy books you know like those typically don't uh hit with me as well for whatever reason but um it's like you said it's that kind of along the lines of like the abercrombie school of using humor like humor can be used without necessarily being like a full-on comedy to actually bring in some character development and like make us care about these characters and connect with these characters even when they're facing like huge monsters and trying to protect their family and being homesick and you know being at odds with each other having complicated pasts you you can inject it with humor without taking away from any of that and the way he does that through the dialogue and through clay's observations it it, it brings a lot of life into the story. And I think it's that charm that a lot of people really take away from this book is just how charming and fun it really is. I agree, Charles. And I think some of what allows the it to stay, I guess, grounded in a real feeling story while also allowing for us as readers to gain this uh, like humor appreciation of it is this this rock and roll element to it where we've got all of these uh, homages, homages, homages Mm. to the seventies rock scene and uh, music in general. And I feel like something that that gives us is the characters don't know that they're like Moog doesn't know he's a reference to a a synthesizer, right? It, but when yeah, his name right. comes up and we start seeing right uh, the, his wizardly awesomeness, uh, we also get the joke that is his name, right? But uh, he, there's no reason for him as a character to think of his name as some sort of like silly reference or anything like that. So we buy that the characters are taking their world world seriously, but we get the chance to kind of laugh. I guess it's at them because it wouldn't be with them if they don't know it. But I don't feel like we're laughing at them in this like derisive way, but like laughing just at Nicholas Eames's incredible ability to weave all these references in. And there's there's just so many of those rock and roll references. (laughs) Yeah, there are countless and not even just like direct references, like names of bands or artists or songs, but just like a lot of the common tropes from real life rock and roll stars have kind of brought their way into the personalities of these characters. Just things like these these giant ships kind of reminding me of like VW tour buses, you know, and the way that certain characters fit this role of like, oh, this is the Yoko Ono potentially, like someone coming, like a relationship mm. coming between a band and then there's drug use and then there's... um and then there's like the greedy manager, you know, there's like all of these kind of spiritual uh, callbacks, homages to rock and roll lifestyle as well that permeate throughout the story that as someone who was deeply obsessed with classic rock in high school, uh, <laughs> greatly appreciates and it's still obsessed, but not as much as I was, but I, I still love all the all those classic rock songs. <laughs> yeah, Charles, I mean... 
you you're in bands growing up and all mm-hmm. this stuff so i thought you'd you'd appreciate and i was a bass player and... which i believe is what clay's um yes y- persona was in the band was an homage to being a, a bass player which i was like oh cool <laughs> yeah charles i've so let's talk some about clay as a character i i want to get into him him and his arc i will just say (laughs) clay always reminds me of you interesting did are you probably not are you surprised at all to hear that or did you find any of these similarities i want to get to clay as a character because that's probably what people are tuning in for Uh, more well you know now that you're you're saying i didn't really think about it that I I didn't really identify so much with Clay. I didn't think, oh, Clay, you know, me and Clay, we got a lot of the same things going on. But um, no, you you really got me with that comparison, and uh, I, I I can see the parallel. I invite it. Uh, I get satisfaction from it. You know, this idea of like um, this the guy who's like you know, in the back being the supporting role, keeping everyone going, you know, kind of keeping the cohesion going with, without necessarily, like, being the, the, the front guy. You know, I see what you're saying. And, yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I think I'd be a lucky man to be compared to Clay. Yes. Clay is a very noble person. He's pretty hard on himself in all these ways. But I'll say... You know, Clay, he just wants to be able to settle down and have mm-hmm. a laid back life. He doesn't he doesn't want these things like fame. He does, he shies away from the times in which people try to build him up to be this giant hero. He just wants to have this this simple life. And I I think the part that really sticks out to me for Clay, his biggest scene is the one where Gabe, who's more of this like charismatic golden Gabe front man getting out there and making a big show about who he is. Uh, we don't know anyone like that. Uh, of course. <laughs> sorry, Charles. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but that being said, it, uh, that at the end of the day, he's, he turns to Clay and he's like, dude, how? Yes, I'm the front man. But in what world do you think I am the leader yeah. of Sokka? Yeah, and that's a good it's moment. That, yeah, so that, that Clay has this understated, humble way about him. But when you take a look back, and this was my reread of Kings of the Wild. So mm-hmm. when you take a look back at all of these moments, it's like Clay very clearly is the leader and is the person that everyone is following. And he is the person that people would charge into the heart wild with. And yeah, he kind of... He- he misinterprets some of those early. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I was I was just gonna agree and say that yeah, he may not be the one giving the direct orders, but whenever they have a debate, he kind of tips the scales. And anytime he does share his opinion on what to do, everyone always kind of gravitates that way. So he he everyone is kind of i don't know if it's subconscious but it feels subconscious certainly to clay that like everyone is just kind of looking to see what he's going to do and have confidence in the fact that he's going to make like a fair choice and yeah. and people seem to have the least amount of grudges with him and and more respect 
for him and things like that than the other members of the band. And yeah, there's a lovely scene I, I, I want to get to later with Clay and, and Gabriel. So, well, no, Ganelon, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I agree. Clay's leadership style is <laughs> an admirable one. He doesn't even know he's the leader. <laughs> you know, we, we've seen that before in a few <laughs> characters in fantasy, <laughs> a la Perrin, a la... Um, I don't know. I don't want to get into other series that might be spoilers, but there's games of Game of Thrones characters and <laughs> real time yeah. characters and all these other things. But yeah, it, it, it kind of goes along the line of that, like reluctant leader kind of, but he doesn't yeah. like reject it. He is like, oh, maybe you're right. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. And uh, it, it works out for them in the end. So not quite the same. Yeah. Well, I think that What's interesting about Clay and something that makes him stand out for me among these fantasy characters and these reluctant leaders that we've talked about in other books is I feel like oftentimes those other reluctant leaders, they like they end up in the position of leadership and then they're still often like a lot of times wondering like why are people following me and i get that like of course it's okay to struggle with imposter syndrome and insecurities and things like that Mm -hmm. Uh, but we've seen it's like uh i'm I'm trying not to spoil wheel of time but uh, we've seen these characters are very clearly in positions of leadership Mm -hmm. and the commanding people there and in charge of being the leader who are still getting that kind of reluctant leader thing going. And Clay actually does lead from the, like the, (laughs) the backseat, basically he's not the front man. And I, I always thought that's very interesting is in no way is it his duty to be the leader. And in that way, people start looking to him and knowing that he, he has no ego about it. It's like right. Gabe has this giant ego, right? Everything <laughs> and most mercenaries do. Yeah, yes, and Gabe most of all probably. And with Gabe, people know when he's coming knocking, like he's done this before. They're coming knocking, like let's get the band back together. They know that a huge part of it, until his daughter Rose is kidnapped, and now they they don't have this way of thinking about anymore but it, he, they know a huge part of it for gabe is this trying to capture the glory years trying to build back up his own persona and it's caught up in gabe's ego and then they see clay and they're like clay would never do any of this stuff just for himself if clay's on board and he's involved it comes from this like very true authentic place that this is what he he genuinely believes is the right thing to do and people trust that so much more than G- Gabe's, uh, like, Paul McCartney-style <laughs> leadership of just, like, look at me, everyone, being amazing at everything. I need to... <laughs> Sorry, right. I'm, I'm very in this. I've been watching that Paul, YouTube channel, <laughs> that Paul McCartney documentary, which, by the way, the Moog synthesizer comes up. <laughs> like, the Moog synthesizer how, does yeah. come up, yep. That was a big deal at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's true. I, I think Clay's motivation is one of the more thematically, like, interesting parts of the series because for me what i loved about clay's character was what kept him going throughout this whole thing right because this is basically a suicide mission the odds are against them the entire time and there's 
like any sensible person would be like, oh, and it happens multiple times. You're like, oh, if she's there, like if Rose is there, she's dead, you know, and you guys are just yeah. going to get yourselves killed trying to go in there and save her. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a lost cause basically. And somehow like Nicholas Eames kept, keeps writing in Clay's motivation of this idea that like he's, this sympathetic guy he's a family man like this man more man than monster right all these like sympathetic points of view of like oh if it was me daddy you would what would you do and Mm. it's it's that drive that he has that keeps him going through all of these things and yes they're getting more like they're getting the band back together they're becoming popular again he does like to fight and that he does enjoy those moments sometimes but it always comes back to his grounding presence of like, look, I believe in like family and doing the right thing. And this is the right thing to do. And as long as there's a chance, like I have to help my friend and I have yeah. to be the example I want to be for my family. And and that constantly drives the plot and it works, which I think is great because so many times I'm reading these fantasy stories and I'm like, they, why don't they just stay home? You know, it's like <laughs> that sounds like a like a more viable option to me than than going through all this craziness. Uh, but with Clay, he finds a way, you know, and I, and I really enjoyed that about the book. Yeah, me too. And speaking of that staying home aspect of this, uh, something something that really sticks out to me about this book is this element of the Dungeons and Dragons group long after the yeah long after the typical campaign would be over it's mm-hmm. like this what happens to the what happens to the rogue in Matric like what happens to the wizard in Moog what happens to the like big champion fighter uh, all that kind of stuff in game as like the leader and I think it's interesting to see this kind of jumped ahead version. And Clay does seem to have it really figured out of this, like, find someone that you really care about, settle down, and they're thinking about opening an inn and kind of, like, settling into that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we see, so that, like, stay-at-home bit is what Clay's doing is working really well but mm-hmm. we see that all these other characters mm-hmm. with their bigger ambitions and egos have gotten themselves uh, <laughs> in trouble the same parts of them that would have made them set out to become this big band mm-hmm. those parts of them are still with them even after the adventure is over mm-hmm. and they're unable to really do this like stay at home thing as well as Clay and they're kind of stuck in their own uh, crap even way after it's like uh you can take the, you can take the, I'm trying to think of how to apply that expression. You can, it's like, take, you can take the kid out of, uh, you can take the kid out of Saga, but you can't take the Saga out of the kid, right? It's yeah, like, exactly. Uh, that same element of them that wanted to be out and ambitious and do our stuff, they're still getting themselves in trouble <laughs> with it. Like we see Moog trying to cure things. We see Matrick. Uh, his <laughs> issues, his roguish issues as a king, right. and we see Gabe, of course, who just keeps looking for more and more glory. 
Right. So let's talk about um, these moments of like getting the band back together when the boys are back mm-hmm. in town, right? What what yeah. that's what that's like. And I guess well, like obviously, you know, Gabriel went to Clay first, and there's so many reasons why Gabriel sees sees Clay as like the moral backbone of the band, the the compass that people are really kind of the moral compass that people are actually following. And like you said, it's this grounding presence of like, yes, Clay likes the like have fun and he loves his friends and he he even enjoys fighting multiple times like you see him really get into it and he acknowledges that about himself but it always comes back to like being a straight arrow so to speak right a rolling Mm -hmm. stone if you will he's like a rolling stone and and, um so i was named after bob dylan right (laughs) know that charles who was you me oh look at you you know and you, you know, know my name right yeah and you know derek <laughs> our our other friend was uh derek and the dominoes you know so wow hey, there you go lot and uh, lots of uh music inspiration around here <laughs> look at that look Sorry. at <laughs> that what we have here is we're getting the band back so gabriel and claire together and then they go to moog right who named after the synthesizer as we pointed out and he's kind of this like eccentric wizard type uh, there's a lot i like about mook's character i think he kind of st- like takes a lot of the comic relief role in a book that's already quite funny so i find his character to be uh rather endearing he you know he's got like the pajamas on he's kind of eccentric he he's making these potions for erectile dysfunction you know, th- it's quite an odd life that he lives and it's it's kept together by his like his his character motivations right which are he's trying to find this cure for the disease that took his partner freddy which you know freddy mercury yeah. right so right. he's trying to find the cure and like the twist that i loved that was revealed kind of early on was that he actually has the disease himself in his foot and that to me, I was like, oh, wow, this is getting like really spicy. So <laughs> I really I don't know. I, I liked Moog as a character and I loved these elements about him. And then, of course, the whole owl bear shenanigans was kind of yes. funny, too. So love me a good owl bear, <laughs> a good owl bear story. But he does bring in kind of this like innocence into the troupe while still hmm. pulling out some like wild card random <laughs> magic things like unwielding some pretty irresponsible magic for quite cal- uh, quite indiscriminately so i just thought that it was just a fun addition to the band and well like the psyche of like the eccentric keyboardist guy too is is well built up in his character yeah that's all well said charles moog is He's definitely a fan favorite. I think he's he might be the like the favorite character. If you I, maybe we could do a poll on Twitter because I, I get the yeah right. Uh, who's your favorite Kings Aloud character? Mm. So anyway, because uh, right, so I guess we'd have to leave. It's a five man band, so we'd have to leave someone off. Mm. But anyway. That's right. a shame. Yeah, <laughs> it would be a shame. But anyway, point B, I, yes, he does. He's the standout, I think, funniest character in a, a cast of funny characters. And he has these moments of absolute 
brilliant with those spells. And then these moments of absolute, uh, I guess, like <laughs> hilarious failure. Yeah. And I'm thinking of the one of my favorite scenes is the Coliseum fight against the Chimera. Yeah, it's a great scene. When he freaking electrocutes himself <laughs> in the middle of that fight. It's like, we're used to Moog. We basically get told really early. It's like, yeah, Moog is a wild card. He's going to have these moments where he saves everyone and like has these huge moments. And he's got moments of spe- spectacular failure and go down in a blaze of glory or what, like a, a lightning strike of glory kind of things. Right. And I do love that uh, Eames really delivers on both of those moments. And it's just like in the middle of this intense chimera fight in front of all this, these roar, this roaring crowd and everyone's doing their best. Catalan's out there doing amazing things, magic, all stuff. It's just Moog electrocutes himself. <laughs> Like yes, so one could funny. say he was thunderstruck, maybe. <laughs> I t- Charles, did you see my tweet? I tweeted, no. uh, oh yeah, I tweeted from my personal uh, about this moment, and I made a thunderstruck. Oh, like, nice. I used the GIF thing, but the making GIFs, if uh, if folks don't follow us on Twitter, uh, they might not know. That's like a, a big hobby of mine. And I made a GIF of Thunderstruck nice. where you could, but it was like a video one uh, and you could actually hear. Uh, so yeah, check me out at Dylan R. Marsh on Twitter <laughs> if you want and scroll down until you find that uh, that Thunderstruck GIF. Cause, and it's with ACDC playing and it's, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, that's yes. fun. And so I beat I, you to I, that one, Charles. Yes, you did. <laughs> it it harbors a lot of fun, the story. And that's one of the things I love about this book. And I got a, you know, again, from the Nicholas Eames interview in the back where he goes, um, I, I set out to write a funny book, a ridiculous book, a book that didn't take itself too seriously. And uh, that to me is mm. like something that can be seen. But then he says, but the characters got away from me. I blame Clay Cooper. So, so I, I think that's a, a good case with Moog, right? He doesn't take himself too seriously. And then like he also brings these moments into the action and into the story sometimes that aren't taken as they're kind of funny and kind of silly. Like when he's fighting monsters with his hat, with like pulling food out of a hat and like throwing yes. it in their faces and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> and when he finds the owl bears and puts them on his back, he's like, Ooh, the owl bears. And he's, you know, he's carrying them around and feeding them with porridge from his mouth, you know, like silly moments like that. It, it never takes itself too seriously, but again, it, it, it services the character work of the story as well. Like you really, like, like you said, Dylan Moo kind of rose up the ranks in terms of being a fan favorite for, I feel like for a lot of those reasons. Yeah. Some of the best moments for sure. It's very exciting and you never know what's going to <laughs> come out, come out of a Moog scene or come out of that bag. It's right, a lot of great stuff. And, I you love know, the his bag. That when they lost the bag, I was like, "No, it's like the greatest <laughs> <laughs> magical item ever." <laughs> yeah, and the the D and D influences with those things are are very big, and I think a lot of people right. who played a lot of D and D will will get a kick out. Yeah, of and there's scenes where they're like, moment. you know, they're raiding their band manager's cache of things. They're raiding Calyrex collection yeah. of artifacts and they're getting suited up and they're fi- pulling out all these artifacts you know that was a fun scene that felt very D to me where it was just like 
oh, all these, what does this armor do? What does this piece do? And then using that in like a like out of context thing in combat. For example, Matrick, his horn of bees, and he, he at the <laughs> end when he's fighting the dragon, he calls, yeah. he blows the horn, and all the bees <laughs> fly into the dragon's mouth, and like that's, you know, that to me is a very like D and D moment for sure. Yes. And let's talk oh, yeah. about Matrick too. <laughs> Oh yeah, well Matrick is interesting. You know I I love roguish characters. Matrick Skull Drummer. When, <laughs> yes, yes, Skull Drummer and his two twin uh daggers, right? Yeah. It's, mm. uh, it, so that have n- that are named after women, yeah. Mm, like guitars often are. Interesting. Yeah, I obviously he's the drummer of the the crew and all that and uh you know, might harken back to when we saw uh, it was Tommy Lee who was the drummer in Molly yeah, Crew, right? That's He's right. Famous. We saw them and open up for Aerosmith. Uh, that's right. So we did. <laughs> hard not to think about that. This kind of like uh, drummer with a huge personality, though, because sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like drummers fade into the back in right. in bands. In uh, but then I think of these bands where they're yeah. You huge got like the lead singer. Like, you've got yeah. like the lead guitarist. These are people that typically catch the public eye but yeah you're right there are famous drummers and certainly like rush has a famous drummer and motley crew like i think the biggest personality in motley crew is tommy lee the drummer so he does invoke that kind of character for sure he's no ringo let's just say that (laughs) he's not fading into background and saying peace and love it's uh I think that seeing Matrick as this character that kind of gets this awesome end for a roguish character, which is uh, like becoming a king, marrying uh, a princess, I guess, at the time or queen, whatever. Point being, Mm -hmm. he gets this fantastic ending for a roguish character. Yeah, well, one of Saga's missions was to rescue this princess from the tower. And that was um, Lilith, who is his wife. Oh, no, Val. Was it Valerie? No, Lilith. No, I think Lilith. it's Lilith. Valerie was hmm. Gabe was Gabe's wife, and Lilith is the queen, the killer queen, if you will. Yes. Right. So then, what we get is fast forward, well past that point of the ending of the campaign. What would this roguish type character be up to? Would they actually be someone who is? consistently like working hard and sat it and a satisfying partner to his wife and and would he be someone who gets rid of all these bad habits of drinking too much and eating too much and all this kind of stuff it's like that's really hard to make that change so it's Mm -hmm. interesting to see his character still stuck in those ways and he has more growth as a character to do before mm-hmm. he's ready to give up a lot of these vices and become the kind of person who can actually be a great leader. And it's it's so cool to watch him go through that as this more middle-aged Rokish character. Yeah, and then a lot of the humor comes from the fact that these guys are so much older now and past their yeah. prime. So there's always complaining of like sore backs, popping joints. And in Matt's case, he's gained a lot of weight. And one of my favorite, like, scenes of dialogue was he just let slip that he had a pie every day. And the bandmate's like, what? You had a pie every day? And he's like, well, yeah, if you're a king, why wouldn't you have a pie every day? It's like, (laughs) otherwise, why be king? (laughs) You know, it's such a good point. (laughs) 
Yes, I I agree. It's so funny. And it's exactly the kind of thing that I think a character like Matrick would think being a king involves. Like, he's not actually thinking about the whole responsibility of ruling. He's thinking about all the hedonistic things that a roguish archetype would be looking for. Mm. And yeah, but he learns. He learns more on this adventure. And I think this time they're doing it for such a noble cause that it, you know, actually saving Gabe's daughter Rose mm-hmm. that uh, folks like Matrick who probably didn't learn very many lessons during their mm-hmm. initial, however many adventures they'd been on, however many years right. were like, okay, this is, this is real now we're doing this right. for And people, it's also interesting to see them going on adventures, you know, when they were saga and they were single and young, right, and hungry for glory. And now when they're older and they have – many of them have families, right, Matt included. Right. And there were scenes throughout where Matt's like, I miss my kids. Like, I I recognize they're not mine, but I miss them anyway. You know, I raised them. I, I am their dad in some way, you know, which is this, like, stepdad yeah. arc type and i think that was a huge part of grounding matt in this story as well as like he's adventuring now as someone who does have a family back home and his situation is not as romantic as clay's it's a bit more complicated but he still misses them because they're his kids so it's Mm. it's this character development that like at the end of the story, that's what happens. Like he he splits up with his wife, but gets to see the kids and all these other. And the kids come to stay with him and things like that. Right. And it's like that. That's his happy ending, which I thought was great. And it it, it goes to show you how like maturity weighed against like their younger glory chasing days, and how that kind of weighed their motivation going through a new quest again as the old band, but as new people. You know, new older people. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah, it makes total sense. And it's well said, Charles. I totally agree. And speaking of those younger glory days, we have one character that has never quite left their <laughs> younger glory days. And yes. that's Galon, right? Yes. He's He's been frozen in carbonite, essentially. <laughs> well, I'll spoil Star Wars. But um, <laughs> he's been frozen there for a while. And he, yeah, he comes out of this just for lack <laughs> excuse that I'm about to say this, but ready to rock and roll. And yeah. he has his axe, which is another fun uh yeah. fun. And he is just still he's still the guy he was when Saga ended. And he gets to really be the muscle of the group and be the most badass character in this whole thing. Yeah. And he had like he kind of punches up in terms of his dialogue every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite scenes was where like get, like he reveals to Clay that while he was frozen the whole time, Clay was like, Oh yeah, well it must be crazy just all of a sudden wake up in a new age. And he's like, I was conscious the whole time and Clay was really yeah. disturbed by that. And then so Clay's like, Oh my god, he must be so mad. Why hasn't he killed us already? And, you know, Ganelon has this great quote where he's like, um, he's talking to Clay and he's like, uh, I never hated you, Slohan, even though he hated everyone else. And he's like, do you want to know why I never hated you? And he basically says along the lines of, uh, 
I've had less friends in this world than I have fingers, but I counted you among them. You're honest and brave and too damn loyal for your own good. Hell, you're just about the best man I've ever known. And so I thought, what kind of monster must I be that even Clay Cooper gave up on me? And I was like, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Like, this cuts against the humor of this book so beautifully because it's like, yeah, they all have fun and they're all really charismatic, likable people, but he was... Like that's a heavy thing to admit. Like, was I a horrible person? Clay is such a straight arrow that he just abandoned me for all this time. And like Clay, honestly, probably didn't really think about it that much because <laughs> he just was like, you know, it was the right thing to do at the time. And but now he's like rendered speechless, and that really affected Clay, which I thought yes. was such a great like band dynamic. Yeah, it's. It's an interesting point, Charles, and that's a fantastic quote you pulled. Mm. And I'm thinking about this. It's basically when you see yourself through a certain lens, or you have a certain like big insecurity. And it sounds like both Ganelon and Clay have this insecurity about being a monster that both mm. are dealing with. Mm. It's funny that they both, I don't know if fight's the right word, but it's interesting that they both interpret the same decision as a sign of they themselves being a monster and not necessarily the other person, right? Like Clay views his own decision to leave Ganelon as this like monstrous thing that Clay did to Mm -hmm. abandon his friend. And then he's worried he's a monster. And Ganelon, meanwhile, interprets the fact that even Clay Cooper, who he thinks is such an incredible person, uh, left him to be frozen there as like, oh my God, that must mean I'm a terrible monster. Mm. And you just got these two people who are trying to express <laughs> to each other, like, no, I'm the bad person here. But <laughs> in reality, it's just two people who like really, really care about each other and uh, like are upset that they hurt each other. And mm. it, like, it's, uh, you know, Gamelon hurt clay basically by like telling him that it like oh yeah i was stuck in there the whole time and because like oh i guess i'm that terrible person yeah. um, but it's yeah he i guess he was kind of giving himself the forgiveness in some ways of um of for trying sure. to go like, oh, it probably wasn't that bad for ganelon and then ganelon took that from him and like you said ganelon this deep deep character mm-hmm. underneath all of this like gruff exterior and we even get to see his um we get to see his romantic side. Yeah. It, it doesn't present the way that most people's romantic side presents, but with uh, Sabatha or Larkspur. And, You're right. Uh, those two fall for each other in their, in their own way. Right. Yes. Yeah. Sabatha. Hmm. But uh, exactly. Yes. It's, it's uh, his character is so interesting because he's portrayed as this like bloodthirsty maniac, right? Who loves violence and you realize that that comes from a lot of like complicated things in his life and the fact that this is his as vulnerable as he gets is in this moment and he's basically like you said taking away this out that clay had formed in his mind of like oh well he wasn't like he didn't suffer you know he was just frozen in stone and then was unfrozen it's like no i was alive i was conscious the whole time and it's like what must that have been like and and it brings like a lot of humility to Clay. Like Clay just keeps thinking of that and is like, there's no way Ganelon could possibly forgive me. But it does show a really deep level of understanding on Ganelon's part to be already coming out forgiving him 
right away. Yeah. It was like, I've had time to process this and it's like not worth the grudges. I'm happy to like be with you guys and, and doing these things again. And I still love to fight and kill things, but it's like, we get to do it as a team for good reasons. That's like what I like as well. So just again, another really deep moment in a series cut with all these fun like mercenary things and like character tropes and humor but it it does have these great character moments in it that like to me like bring the series up a whole level i bring this book up a whole nother level is that it doesn't take itself seriously but it's also like a great story that does take itself seriously a a couple times like it's not trying to be capital l literature but it it is trying to tell like a dramatic story as much as it is trying to tell a humorous one and when you have like a like this cast of characters it can be sometimes hard to get the pacing right get the dialogues right get the scenes right when you have to balance like a five character troop but i think nicholas eames did a fantastic job yeah i totally agree as is that just leaving Gabe in the in the group well, that we, we haven't talked we about? We did really talk about Gabe a little bit. Um, is there any any points we want to make about Gabe before we get into like some favorite moments? Uh, I guess it's interesting. He's the front man, but he probably has the he has the most I guess straightforward arc, right? Yeah. He's trying to save Rose, and then he struggles with trying to be the leading man and trying to figure out what that actually means to him. And then he, he saves Rose. There's these elements too, of like a former rock star where like, you know, there's like some elements of drug addiction involved. And Mm. uh, there's these elements of like, he's broke and he sold all of his famous things like Valacor. He, he, he pawned off to his former band manager. So these are stories that sometimes you see from like, older rock and roll legends right where it's like oh they're actually bankrupt now and they're auctioning off guitars and and Mm. and things like this it it has happened and i think that's like kind of the influence that nicholas eames was was pulling in for this character of like now that we're in the future like here's this trope amongst rock stars where like they lived fast and loose and like up to 11 and then that that burned out faster than their lives did and now they're like trying to pick up the pieces you know and i feel like that was gabe at the beginning of this story and he's trying to find out like oh if i get the band back together my purpose will be back and also like i love my daughter obviously so i want to rescue her as well and he i think he was trying to look for his purpose and obviously his his character arc comes to a head when he leads the charge of all the mercenaries right he does take this leadership position he does inspire that entire room of people and he does manage to like fight these great battles even though like he gets winded at the end and shaky when he's in the moment he does step up and i think that that all goes towards his character arc this almost like redemption arc for him Hmm. yeah that yeah that's a great point Charles, I think that he, I I guess when I take a look at what he's dealing with throughout this, he's dealing with the fact that he's chased glory and like achievement his entire life and adulation and all this stuff. And he totally got all that adulation. And what that ended up giving him was like being a father that his daughter wanted to be like enough where she actually went off and tried to be her own, like, a front woman of a band. And 
he's realizing that I guess the downsides of being a person who has this giant persona and all of this fame it's it, there's it's a heavy weight to bear and it's something that like gets his daughter in terrible terrible danger because it's like when Clay is talking to Gabe about this this idea of Rose becoming a merc it's like well I wonder like and Gabe is just like she got all these ideas of glory and stuff in her head yeah and Clay is like where do you think those like oh I wonder where those came from <laughs> and it's like he he's dealing with the aftermath of like the glory stays with you but you don't get the constant gratification from it and all you do is make the people around you like want to chase that feeling themselves and gets his daughter in trouble and it gets him in this place where he feels like he can't even live up to his own persona you know he's walking around golden gabe and he's gray and he's so he gets this you use the word redemption charles and that made me think about the idea that yeah it's like he's struggling with this persona and this glory and what it's done to him and those around him how it's hurt those around him but then he does get to utilize the flip side or use uh, the flip side of this glory and this persona to be the figure that everyone needs him to be in order to lead that giant charge and get everyone pumped up Mm -hmm. and only (laughs) so it's like only Gabe would have a daughter who needs so badly to be this amazing uh, fighter and band member who gets herself into that situation. Uh, So it's like a a uniquely Gabe problem, but it has a uniquely Gabe solution in the fact that only Gabe could rally that many troops to save everyone inside the city. Right. So he could really only do that redemption. Yeah. And he could really only gather everybody by getting this sort of like self-respect back. Because even at the beginning of this story, when he meets with Clay, Clay you can tell doesn't really have much respect left for him. It's like, oh, this guy's kind of washed up. He only comes when he wants Mm -hmm. to ask something of me. Like he's, you know, he's, his family's like disintegrated. He's, he's sold off. Well, I don't know if he discovered that Valakor was sold off and he was like, oh, how could you? (laughs) Like, that's like such a sad thing, piece of news, right? This legendary weapon was pawned off, you know? So he, Definitely had to work his way back towards being someone worthy of respect and command. And even with his daughter as well, the whole reason his daughter went off is because he like she had disagreements with Gabe and they didn't see eye to eye and she wanted her own shot at glory. So mm-hmm. I, I think it all came around to this like this idea of having some self-respect as well as like being open and honest with his daughter and that that helped him like lead these forces and step back into his role as as the front man so yeah i thought his arc was really interesting and and it's the driving force of the whole novel obviously and it it causes clay to like reprioritize his life as well he can see like he can see that gabe's whole family's and totally disheveled and sees what like a daughter chasing glory and like how he doesn't want Mm. that for his own daughter and things like that. So it's interesting to see. Yeah, totally. It's cool seeing Clay work through his own potentially um, (laughs) scary path of his daughter. Cause you know, she kills that centaur at the end and he has to come back to that and deal with what it means 
that someone, you know, that he might have to be a person who has a child that wants to be right. in a band as well. And life and outside mentioned... of chasing glory too, which is, you know, there's that yeah. scene where Clay is reflecting on why he, like how he fell in love with his wife. And there were some elements of like, she could see me for me outside of like being mm. a like big man in saga and like being really good at killing monsters. She saw me for something else and she wanted something else from me that I never realized I wanted for myself, you know, that kind of drive to be a better person. So the fact that he is being pulled in that direction from his own family and he can learn from Gabe's situation at at the same time is a great dynamic. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree, Charles. But you mentioned so favorite moments ta- and oh, I, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned favorite moments. My like my favorite moment in the whole book is when we get the speech from Gabe. It's it it gives me chills. It gave me it gave me chills the first time I read it, it gave me chills the second time I read it and it's I I guess it's a speech that feels like it's it's about doing it for like making the world a better place for like with beneficent intentions rather than doing it for glory. Right. It, Cause he gives this giant, this huge speech to all these people who've been fighting in Colosseums mm-hmm. just for the sake of everyone watch me, everyone see me doing this. And Gabe comes from a time in which they, you know, maybe they were doing it for glory, but the Colosseums weren't around and what the result was, was they were clearing out the heart wild of these dangerous, dangerous things. And looking back, Gabe is able to see the the benefit to society that was caused by that, especially when there's a giant horde full of monsters that have not been getting killed because they like no one's been going into the heart wild and taking that risk. Mm-hmm. And he he kind of reorients this next generation of band members toward why do we do this? We don't yeah. do there's a little there's a little Joe Abercrombie uh, influence for you. Yeah. Uh, Glock is always wondering that about himself. Yeah. It's like why like why do we do this? Why do we get out there and form these bands and fight? And in Gabe's head, looking back, or at least the message he knows he has to give to people to get them to actually fight is we do this to rid the world of monsters and protect the ones that we love Mm. and hearing someone who's chased glory his entire life send a message about helping people while he's thinking about saving his daughter it's it's absolutely beautiful and Mm -hmm. i always talk about this book being like i say humorous and heartfelt in equal measure and it's like those moments they, Mm -hmm. they give me chills they just hit me in the feels and that speech it's so freaking well delivered and imagining these like it's like 10,000 20,000 30,000 people oh, just roaring as Gabe gives the speech it's just epic in every sense of the word is just so beautiful i love 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 that moment that's a great moment to pick i thought for sure you were going to pick the coliseum but I, I i also love this scene as well it's like you said it's like everything's kind of coming to a head for gabe and it's also just like the moment they're in right the charge before the battle and he's mm-hmm. like giving this heartfelt speech to all these mercenaries at a time where things are changing you know he's like change is happening as he's giving yeah. this speech and it and it's so exciting and that's one of the things that 
I'm really most impressed with about Nicholas Eames is that he delivers on these epic moments every time and he's like unabashedly leaning on them and putting them up and making them these huge moments that could sometimes be perceived as like oh here we go like another epic battle scene but it's very endearing coming from Eames and coming from these characters and I think it's such a it's almost risky to have all of these moments of like then they fight a dragon and then he gives the speech and then they fight in a huge coliseum. It's like you can't do all those things like <laughs> in, in one book. But Nicholas Eames does and is always fun. And in this moment in particular, why well, I think it's such a good one to bring up is that it's fun, but it also, like you said, brings on the chills. And it's definitely mm-hmm. like a game changing moment for this book where everything's kind of coming to a head and things are happening and it's very exciting. So it's such a such a great balance that the fact that this book can be fun and silly and humorous and then also kind of like it's like chilling and inspiring in some ways yeah it, it it's it's high praise i think it's a great accomplishment yeah totally agree charles well said yeah that's a great yeah you got a favorite moment that you wanted to bring oh, up boy i mean i love the scene with with um Ganelon and Clay that we already talked about where he's like, what kind of monster must mm. I be? Just because it took me by surprise. You know, like that kind of a deep cut. It, it took me by surprise. And it reminds me of another one of these scenes that I that also took me by surprise. But it's also kind of, it's one of my favorite scenes kind of couched in one of my least favorite moments. So I'm going to just bring both up oh. quickly. I, um, so one of the scenes that I absolutely loved was when Clay was fighting Larkspur. And he mm. goes, like, they have this so back and forth, like, Larkspur, Larkspur, uh, Larkspur. Larkspur betrays them, right? And they're having this fight, and and it's an act of betrayal. Like, she's, right. like, borderline irredeemable at this point. And Clay was able to, you know, overtake her and go to deliver the final blow. And she's, like, begging for mercy. And Clay even acknowledges that he should have known better, but he couldn't help himself. And he, like, stalled. And in that moment, Larkspur cuts his hand off and throws him off the cliff, right? So you're like, and then the scene ends with him free falling, sorry, <laughs> uh, free falling oh, wow, off the it. cliff. The yeah, petty and, reference. Yeah, that was a little petty of you. Yeah. Just, I wish I said it that way first. Oh, yeah. A little petty of you to bring, bring in that punk. Yeah. But keep rolling, I, keep rolling, Charles. I'll, I'll keep rolling. Oh, so... <laughs> so yeah we have clay knocking on heaven's door basically right he's he's been disarmed he's falling free falling and i was shocked i was like wow clay the whole thing is he's supposed to come back to his wife and come back unharmed okay Mm. and we've been facing these like insurmountable odds this entire story and now here it is this moment where like clay's character right he's he is this kind of guy who's open to giving people chances and and he is more sympathetic and he's been battling with these like this like am i man or monster things and he sees that in larkspur and he's made that comment he's like hoping larkspur comes back around to sabatha right and so he's giving her that moment again and then he loses like she attacks him for that and that scene to me, I was like, wow, I was really impressed. <laughs> it's like, here's the stakes yeah. that we've been looking for where like there's a cost to doing this, to walking away from your family and doing something really, really dangerous. You don't just get to 
come back from that unscathed, right? This is a huge injury, like losing an arm. And, it, uh, and like, the fact that his nickname is Slowhand is mm-hmm. also, like, a delicious irony in all of that. And that, to me, like, when that chapter ended, I was like, whoa, what a, what a powerful moment. Like, to have to go back to your wife now and be like, uh, so uh, I, I lost a hand. It, it, it's a tough thing to do. And then when your whole identity is around being slow hand and now you have, uh, even the book joked, like, oh, no hand. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to face. And so that was a great moment. For me, it was unfortunately undercut by like the next scene where he gets rescued by one of his um like you know like these other like bands they were friends with these older bands and they come in and and he's like i can grow you a new hand and then the like it'll take an hour (laughs) i'm like why he gets a new hand in an hour and Mm. so for me it was like oh i would have loved to have seen the fallout of him just now having one hand and you could do cool stuff with that but you know it is what it is i really enjoyed (laughs) the the ending it didn't need to be an ending with clay with one hand but for me like the scene where he lost his hand was so powerful and it's just slightly undercut by him immediately getting it back in the next chapter so it's my one of my favorite moments couched in one of my least favorite moments yeah I totally see what you're getting at there, Charles. I I had a similar reaction. Uh, I think the the Larkspur reveal is so incredible, and I love this. Like I've been, I basically she says that she's been doing this for longer than you'd like. <laughs> like she's been uh, she's been doing this for a long time of pretending to be Sabbath uh, mm-hmm. while she's actually been Larkspur and just waiting for her moment. And that is such a cool reveal. And Sabbath is a very interesting character with this complex past. And to see it come to fruition of her struggling with that same theme of the man versus the monster uh, type stuff is really cool. And the moment of her betrayal is awesome and redeemed kind of when she comes back later. It's uh, so that, that stuff's awesome. The giant right. and then kisses a Ganelon. Yeah. Right. That is an epic moment too. <laughs> and, and Gabe is like, they say I'm dramatic. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I do see what you're getting at with this. It'd be nice to have more cost, I guess, to this mission that everyone was going on with this sense of, there's almost no way we survive and then when all the characters come out of it unscathed it feels on point for this book and its messages and its themes and its hopefulness mm-hmm. and you know where uh, we, we read a lot of grimdark so it's almost there's this part of us that's like oh once a hands off we think <laughs> okay yeah that really demonstrates the cost of this journey and there's a lot of things that could have been really interesting about seeing Eames do that. Uh, that being said, yeah, a, a minor, like a minor yeah. loss of potential cost and stakes in a much larger, awesome, funny, amazing fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. So, yeah, I see it, Charles. I see it. I think I did have a similar reaction. Um, yeah, it's uh, overall cool stuff. The slow hand reference, which, by the way, is a, a Clapton. Uh, allusion to Clapton or Clapton. Um, um, yes, that's what I've seen on Reddit threads. I haven't seen somewhere where Eames confirms it, but I wouldn't doubt interesting. it. Okay. Yeah. It, no, it's a cool moment. And right after that, it reminds me of I, the he 
he falls down to where the Eden brothers are, which their their names, uh, Gregor and Dane, are allusions to the Allman brothers' names. Yeah, uh, which is awesome. <laughs> um, so then, I don't know. It, it reminds me too of another thing. I really like. I don't know if it's a favorite moment or like a, one of the favorite parts of the book for me are these Eden brothers and the idea of the one brother that can't see. And we have the brother that then's like, oh, well, I can just make his life into the best thing I can possibly make it into and make him as happy as possible. (laughs) And he kind of lets his brother live in this like naively optimistic world where (laughs) he's describing the cannibal's food as being this amazing, delicious course with uh, all this stuff that is uh, uh, much preferable to eat uh, or much uh, uh, would be a much better meal. Uh, And he's walking through these like muddy areas and describing them as being beautiful. And it just, I don't know, some really like deep exploration of (laughs) would you rather be in line with a sometimes pessimistic reality or would you rather be unable to see that and live in a world that you you like you think is really really optimistic if you have that opportunity and it's kind of interesting that uh, right after clay falls down we get this uh, dane who's the one who is being told all this optimistic stuff and truly believing it after his brother dies he dies too and dane uh it's described in the prose as uh he, uh, Dane, he saw through bleary eyes, had died as he'd lived with a great big ugly smile on his face. And mm. it's it's a really deep exploration, I feel like, for a book with yeah. so much humor. It's well, part of the amazing balance of what Eames provides. Yeah, no, those are fun characters. There's that moment where it's like, oh yeah, we'll hold on to that. And they pass it through all the bandmates and the last one just throws it in the snow, you know, where it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Like this idea of indulging mm. him, but <laughs> like just keep going. You know, there's some funny moments in there for sure. Yeah, that's good stuff. Well, well, Charles, uh, are there <laughs> other moments you want to bring up? Are you feeling like we're... Well, I guess on. the only other thing that we haven't like addressed at all that may be worth addressing is this whole dynamic with Lastleaf and his family mm. and the fact that they are the basis for this religion that's been alluded to throughout the whole story. And he was the um, yeah, like last leaf, the autumn sun, you know, things like that, where it's like, right. oh, OK, it's kind of fun. And it kind of parallels this family dynamic as well too and and this idea of like uh this whole arc of like we're what the past makes us things like that i think was a theme that was repeated several times and lastly for someone that kind of never got over it and let that kind of fester whereas someone like gabe was able to Mm. uh embrace it and kind of forge a new life matt as well comes to mind where it's like yeah, we just, you know, we got a divorce and now we, you know, split custody of the kids, all these things. But, mm-hmm. but lastly, it was like the one that was like hateful and hateful and hateful, hateful, like living in those past moments and, you know, mm-hmm. like create this villain aspect. Yeah, I do love Last Leaf as a villain because we get these moments that humanize him, I mm-hmm. guess. He has such mm-hmm. a 
dark, messed up past that he's emerged from. And we understand how he's become the so full of resentment and someone who, you know, we think of when he was locked away and basically forced to be in these fighting pits on top of all that familial trauma that he's gone through that we get how he's become who he's become. And that being said, we also see him as a villain because he's marching a giant horde onto a at that point, defenseless city. So I, I always appreciate villains that we, we understand why they do the things they do, why they think they're in the right and why mm-hmm. they see themselves as heroes of their own story. And I think right. last leaf for me really falls into that category. And it's a, it's a interesting reveal who he ends up being. And right. And the fact I, that I it love ends it. where he, Lastleaf, yeah. yeah, he, he, he takes his own life with Tamarat, which is the blade that, Right. supposedly like when you kill a druid with it it will bring his mom back to life essentially so that was kind of a cliffhanger ending to this story True. where it's revealed that he did kill himself with that blade so you can assume that his mother's alive somewhere <laughs> but you know there is another book in the series that i have not read bloody rose and there's a third one yep. too so mm-hmm. um can only speculate Coming. but <laughs> it's not out yet but the third one on the right. way third one on the way not out yet the second one bloody rose is out you could read it right now mm-hmm. uh which i have not but uh i've heard it's it's even better which is exciting wow. have you read it have you read bloody rose no i have not mm. I, even nicholas seems was like i think it's a better book too so you know it's that's great we always love when authors are evolving and continue to grow in this. Uh, this book is such an incredible start to this band series. Yeah, it's such so a great debut it's, novel. Too. Yeah. It, it, oh, can I also mention, so I saw an interview with Nicholas Eames on uh, Patrick's book two page, and I, I heard him talk about an idea he had mm-hmm. for something called bards which would be i i think a short story like a collection of short stories which takes you back to the time in which saga was in their prime and it would be a perspective in each individual short story from one of the bards one of the many (laughs) bards that have died along (laughs) saga's journey (laughs) yeah so that's like this fun running joke in kings of the wild is that the bards never survive and then they get an undead bard (laughs) and (laughs) and then we would get this short story of getting to see prime saga with this running gag played out over and over again of how the bards end up getting themselves killed and It'd just be really fun to see Saga in their prime. I don't, I I, I don't, yeah, I, I lean toward this idea of these like individual short stories. You could almost do it like, they end with I the bard said Witcher style. <laughs> like the, the running joke would be different and the fun stuff with the bards, but this like, okay, like these individual stories of how Saga in their prime dealt with these like really standout events. And mm-hmm. you'll always be waiting in each story, you'd be waiting for, which like how is the bard gonna die i feel yeah. like nicholas eames with his fun like his am- amazing humor would be able to like kind of play with that idea a lot like have the bards kind of get in these situations just like oh this is how this they're gonna die and then it's like oh nope not this time like i, I just imagine this really fun <laughs> book and yeah eames seemed awesome. really passionate about the idea okay. um and i was like i don't know like and he i think he 
I don't remember the details, but for some reason, like he'd, he'd like kind of pitched it and it didn't catch steam with the publishers or whatever. But I, I just want to be on record saying that it sounds awesome. Yeah. And bards. I'm Come all on. for the idea of, and yeah, it would be called Bards, I think. Yes. Yeah, so such well, a cool idea. Maybe when this third book comes out and does well, they'll let Eames do whatever he wants <laughs> and we can yeah. get a Bard story after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what we can hope for. But yeah, I mean, that it, I loved how much fun this book was willing to have. And although Eames says he, it, it doesn't take itself too seriously, and I'd say that's true, I would also say that, you know, it's it's incredibly well written and great character work that does take itself seriously. You know, it, it does that fine balancing act of like, what does it mean to not take yourself seriously while still telling like a really engaging dramatic story with character work it's like you obviously are taking yourself seriously in certain ways but it's like you're not here to like pontificate on all kinds of deep thoughts and meanings and things like you're here to have fun and hit on these like high level themes of of family and glory and uh you know all these other epic scale battles and battle speeches and, and fighting moments you've got a guy like like jumping in the air to slash this huge demon with an epic weapon and it's cool yeah and like that's just what i loved about this story right. so unabashedly fun and humorous and yeah like you said yeah. it was a really interesting venn diagram of all these interests i've had throughout my life that have overlapped <laughs> to create this book so like i was yeah. i'm super into it <laughs> yeah me too. As it's definitely a very Charles feeling book, and I'm happy. I'm yeah. I'm just so pumped that we. I got the chance to finally discuss this with you. And yeah, I, yeah. It's it's awesome. It's such a fun. I guess yeah. It's just an awesome fun book. It's uncynical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is willing to be hopeful, but willing to take, like you said, Charles, willing to take itself seriously and all that and. Hearing your voice on this, Charles, is music to my ears. <laughs> I appreciate that, Dylan. It's a big effort. <laughs> I appreci- it's a big effort, that joke. <laughs> oh, gosh, gosh, gosh. Well, this was so much fun, Dylan. Always great talking good fantasy with my lifelong friend here on the Mm. friends talking fantasy podcast and this was a nice little reprieve from our abercrombie reading but you know we're gonna get right back into it we've got speaking of short stories we've got sharp ends Mm. that we are starting that we are going to talk about next week and then we're gonna go right into the age of madness in preparation for wisdom of crowds which drops in september so you don't want to miss that everybody Yes, totally agree. Don't want to miss us talking more Abercrombie, uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, and all that stuff about the wonderful lifelong friend stuff. Yeah. I mean, come on, Charles. Yeah. This is what it's all about. It's friends talking fancy. It's this is what we're doing. We're friends, friends talking, we're talking fancy, fancy, and we've delivered I mean, yet this again. Is, <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is it. What more could we ever ask for? What so, more yeah, could we always ever a, ask Always for? a pleasure, Charles. Always an absolute always pleasure. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Always a pleasure. The Gabe to my clay, for sure. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, I didn't want to 
explicitly compare myself to Gabe, but I, I didn't know if I'd be able to get through this whole thing without one of those. And almost, almost. But yes, Charles, you are the true leader uh, of this FTF podcast journey. And but, you know, I would you've follow you into the heart wild. And, the style. Yeah, I would. <laughs> and I would go risk my life for your cause any mm. day, buddy. Any day. Oh. And uh, with that being said, that Dylan, nice. I think there's really nothing left to do but, you know, keep this train a rolling and get the outro music going. What do you say? Let, yeah. Let's do this book proud and get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, come and jam with us over on social media. That's Twitter at the FTF Podcast with a number one at the end and Instagram on the FTF Podcast. We just passed a thousand followers, guys. Really exciting. Thank you all so much for the support. It's very touching to see that kind of support for our little channel out over there. So if you want to engage with us, that's the best place to do it. And Dylan, if they wanted to support the show even further... Oh, oh you wanted to say something? Or you... No. you okay, so if I'm you just want... Making, I'm just making the silly noises <laughs> I make while you do this, Charles. Uh, okay, Don't you're holding up like a one-minute finger. I was confused. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> if you like what... If, if, if they like what they heard, <laughs> and they want to support the show even further than engaging with with us and following us on social media and they just so happen to be listening on apple Podcasts. Oh. what can they do toss five stars to mm. our podcast yeah. just find that friends talking fancy page on the apple podcast app click on the friends talking fancy page scroll down past all those episodes where are we at like 150 charles <laughs> scroll down past those episodes getting there <laughs> until you start seeing stars until you're seeing stars the optimal number of stars to click to in order to support the show would be five of them if you've got a little bit of extra time then writing a review is extremely helpful for a podcast like ours but just listening is more than enough we appreciate you so much everyone we do yes guys thank you so much for listening and for all of you that left reviews thank you i was just telling dylan before we recorded i was had checked on those after not checking for a while it was so touching to see all the kind words and all the support on there as well so we do read those they are very meaningful thank you so much but even just listening is more than we could ever hope for so Mm -hmm. guys thank you all so so much for listening and as always go forth and conquer friends <laughs>